I'm SP from the GuineaGeek.com show, a weekly geek news podcast that is part of the GuineaGeek.com network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other amazing geek shows at GuineaGeekNetwork.com. Talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. The intellectual podcast starts now. Welcome back to the Intellectual Podcast. I'm your host, David S. Dawson. Thank you once again for joining us on the show. I'd like to give a shout out to the Gunna Geek Network, the kind of plethora of podcasts of which we are a proud part at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. If you enjoy our show or you enjoy our sister program, the Sci-Fi Sunday Podcast, I'm sure you will find content that you will love at Gunna Geek. So make sure you're going to GunnaGeekNetwork.com. Also, please support our show in the most uh, simple way that you can by subscribing to the program. You can do that on uh, Apple Podcasts. You can do that in the Google Play uh, app. You can do it on Spotify. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, please make sure that you subscribe to the Intellectual Podcast. It makes sure that when we put out new content, you're made aware of it and it can download to your phone. Um, it's the best way to make sure that you don't miss anything that we put out. Today's show is one of those special moments for me. Every once in a while, there's a TV program or a movie that comes out that just kind of hits the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, everybody talks about it. Anywhere you turn, you can't help but hear things about it. Uh, and this particular program... Uh, for me, this this past year was The Mandalorian. Uh, it helped launch Disney+, Plus, which all by itself is kind of a really big thing. But it also brought Star Wars live action to television in a way that was respectful of the history of Star Wars, uh, positive towards the future of Star Wars, and just exceptionally well done from showrunners John Favreau and Dave Filoni. And... I, you know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Anybody who's listened to any of my shows knows that uh, I'm kind of crazy about Star Wars. And we had an opportunity because my co-host Whitney is amazing and she knows like all sorts of people all over the place everywhere. And when I was talking about the Mandalorian and how excited I was about the show, she says, hey, you know, I know Emily Swallow. She's on that show. Um, at the time she hadn't watched it, but, uh, she said, I think she's the armorer. And I'm like, really, really, you know, the armorer from the Mandalorian. She says, well, yeah, I, we went to UVA together. I said, okay, <laughs> we've got to get her on the show. And Whitney Wegman Wood is incredible. She put the work in, she reached out to Emily. We had to work this out over the course of several weeks to coordinate the schedules, I was out of town. Emily's out of town. Whitney's out of town. Uh, we kind of had to figure out a way to make it all happen. And we finally did this week. And I'm so excited to bring you the Armorer Unmasked here on the Intellectual Podcast with me and Whitney. So enjoy and may the force be with you. So cool. Hi, I, I'm David. Hey, David. And you know me. So. I'm proud of meet you. I know you. <laughs> Talk to you. Yeah. 
So I'm super excited to have you on the show, but uh, like Whitney wants to talk to you a little bit about uh, your history and how you got to where you are before I start geeking out on you like a Star Wars nerd. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So should we do the intellectual intros and everything? Or Sure. Uh, welcome to the Intellectual Podcast. I'm David S. Dawson. I'm Whitney Wegman-Wood. And we're going to geek out today. With Emily Swallow. Many of you know her as the armorer from The Mandalorian. Hello, Emily. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Do I wait or do I not? No, you're good. Whitney likes to be very formal on the intros. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, So we're talking (laughs) to you. You're in New York right now. So you're calling in. I am. Um, So, yeah, just to start, I mean, obviously, uh, everyone knows you as the armorer right now. But I know you as a University of Virginia alum. So. Wow. Wahoo wah. So can we start back from, well, we'll even further back. When did you decide that you wanted to be an actor? Oh, um, it was a series of sort of nudges in that direction. I definitely wasn't one of those people who like had the, the blinding light telling me um, all of a sudden. Um, I think just because like I love performing, but I was just interested in so many things. And I also didn't have any real like reference point for anyone who I knew personally who had gone into a career as an actor. So it didn't really seem like something that, that real people, meaning people that I knew did. Well, because Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I was, well, to go all the way back, I was born in Washington, DC and I lived in Northern Virginia in Sterling until I was seven. And then we moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And, um, and my parents are both big music lovers. And I mean, lovers of the arts in general, but they, there was a lot of music in our home. My dad attempts to play many different instruments and my mom (laughs) sings. And, uh, I was in the church choir from a really early age and played the piano. And I started doing plays in school and that was fun. Um, I didn't really get any big parts in school. Um, which I, I like to remind my high school drama teacher of, like we did this production of into the woods and I didn't even get cast. <laughs> and I like to, I, I actually, I tell her, I'm like, tell your students that tell them that there is life beyond rejection from the school play. Like it's all part of the thing. You gotta, you gotta face a lot of heartache and just keep at it. So, um, when I got to UVA, I was a, a middle Eastern studies major. Cause I thought I would go into the foreign service. And um, my time was sort of split between that and the drama department. And as you know, Whitney, the UVA drama department is so welcoming, even if you're not a major. And I'm really grateful for that um, because I don't know if I would have, I don't know that I would have wanted to major in it at that time. I didn't know it was what I wanted to do. Um, So I did a whole lot of plays and wound up like spending most of my time there And it wasn't until my last year at UVA that Richard Warner, who um, was one of my acting teachers, like Richard's amazing. Richard is amazing. And Bob Chapel, I also owe so much to, I mean, he cast me in so many great parts um, and some really challenging parts. So by that point I'd realized that I loved it. And I'd also realized that I could only get so far on instinct and that I, I really needed more tools in my toolkit if I was going to do it. So Richard posed the question to me about, you know, is this something that you want to do for a living? And if so, do you want to think about auditioning for 
graduate programs and conservatories. And I said, yeah, I think if I am going to do it, I, I want to focus on it and I want to um, learn different methods and different things that I can draw from for characters that aren't that instinctual. So he helped me cook up like, I swear, I had probably a dozen monologues ready to go at the drop of a hat. Yeah, that and, sounds like Richard. He's like very much a, <laughs> you should have like at least eight to 12 monologues on deck that you can do at any time. They want another one, then another one. Yeah. I, I love that. And he gave me the idea of, you know, read a play a week and try a new monologue a week. And I was doing that for incredible. a while. He's always <laughs> learned himself. I mean, he now lives um, just outside the city in New York and I get to see him from time to time. And um, he's just constantly learning. He's so hungry for for new ideas and trying new things and uh well he's yeah. still teaching too with uh erica arbald they head down to atlanta on a regular basis and do uh um you know weekend symposiums and things yeah so he's incredible yes. um but so I, I went up to new york for just a couple of weekends and and tried to fit in as many auditions as i could and i auditioned for nyu without really knowing honestly i i and sort of sheepish to say, but I'm glad that it was this way at the time. I didn't quite know what a prestigious program it was. And less pressure, right? Yeah, so much less pressure. I was in the room with Zelda without really knowing that she was Zelda. And (laughs) I'm so glad. And that's sort of a theme for me, I guess, because like when I auditioned for The Mandalorian, I had no idea what a big deal it was. So (laughs) I'm really... I'm really glad that I've had some auditions for big deals that didn't feel like big deals. The um, case of ignorance is bliss, uh, right? Oh my gosh. So much. <laughs> yeah. So I got into NYU and it, I mean, I felt like if that door was open, I should walk through it. And I have to say, you know, people ask me if my parents were supportive when I said I was going to move to New York and be an actor. And I had been saying I was going to move to the Middle East and work to an em- work in an embassy in Jordan. So moving to New York to be an actor was like so much saner and so much safer. <laughs> so they were very supportive. <laughs> you set Not the expectations at the right place. <laughs> exactly. Tell your family you want to move halfway across the world and then anything pales in comparison. <laughs> So you finished your program in New York and then what was your next step? Did you jump directly into LA or did you stay in New York a while? My next step was panic. Um, because yep. <laughs> I went straight into grad school from undergrad. So, and I actually had a job when I immediately after I got out of school, cause I was in the non-equity company for Shakespeare in the park. So when that show ended in July, I guess I, freaked out because it was the first time in my life that I wasn't in school and there was nobody telling me like where to go and and what to do and um I did sign with an agent right out of NYU which is incredibly um fortunate and I'm still with that agent today oh that's Uh, great yeah she's actually the I'm still with the same agency and my the woman who was my agent is now my manager her name's Hannah Roth and She's also such a dear friend, and I just feel so blessed by that relationship. That's so important um, to have have an agent and a manager that you click with, and that it becomes a, a like a almost a family relationship. I think you know. It really does, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so 
after Shakespeare in the Park ended, I mean, also it was summer. Like the fact that that you graduate from an actor training program right before the summer is like the cruelest joke ever because there's just not much to audition for. It's such a slow time. Right. Um, you know, that's what happens when you go to a, when you're in a, the, uh, traditional educational calendar. Um, so I did like a, I remember I did a little off Broadway, well, like off, 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 off Broadway sketch show. Um, that was sort of funny. And that's where I met, um, Michael Yuri was with my agent at the time. And I guess he had asked her like for a funny woman to be in it. And she thought I was funny. Thank goodness. So, uh, so that's when I, I first met him and I uh, have just loved cheering for him through his career. And I just think that he is one of the nicest and of course, funniest and most brilliant actors and human beings I've ever met. Um, so, you know, even though it was a, a very low rent show, like it was, I definitely learned a lot from it. And I think I, I got some, some comic education. Um, but I really, I, I didn't think I had any interest in LA. I thought I just wanted to do theater. Um, and it wasn't really until like, I, I did, I did a couple of episodes of writing light and I was sort of auditioning for TV, but it wasn't until, um, I was doing the very short lived Broadway run of high fidelity the musical based on the Nick Hornby novel, the yeah. John Cusack movie. And I hear they're making a TV series of it now, of course. I believe they are. Um, but we closed, we, we opened on Broadway and closed within two weeks. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, indeed. <laughs> and it was right before the holidays and, and therefore it was kind of like right before pilot season. So that coincided with <clears throat> Hannah who was my point person at my agency, she had just moved to LA. So I said, all right, I don't have a job in New York. My person is in LA. Maybe I'll give pilot season a try. So that's when I started going out to LA. And, and I, used to, I used to be consistently in New York and I would dabble in LA. Um, and I mostly did theater and did a little bit of television. And then gradually that, that uh, ratio shifted and I got to where I was mostly living in LA and, and just sort of dabbling in New York. But, so what was the uh, first I'm thing out. you booked in L.A.? The first thing that I booked in L.A.? Ooh, I wonder. Oh, no, I remember. It was an episode of Jericho. Okay. That I almost, almost entirely cut from. <laughs> because they ran out of time when we were shooting. I was shooting on the last day of the last episode, I think. It wound up being like the series finale. And they were way behind schedule and over budget. And so when they realized they weren't going to get to my other scene, they just cut it. (laughs) uh, I think that was my first LA TV gig. And you know, that's kind of a nice way to start because it wasn't much. (laughs) So it made made the next thing feel really great. It wasn't much. It gave you good practice and nobody had to see it. So it's all, it's all great. right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So then what was the trajectory after, after Jericho? When did you move out officially? Um, I never really officially moved out. I never really officially left New York. I never, I, I, I don't, 
I never officially chose between either city because I like them both for such different reasons. But I would say that uh, ratio of, you know, where I was the most shifted to L.A. when I got um, my first series was a show called Monday Mornings on TNT. And uh, I booked it actually while I was doing the thing that that your agent tells you you're never supposed to do because I went to do a play in Minneapolis at the Guthrie during pilot season, which is just like, you know, forbidden. But uh, I was auditioning on tape the whole time I was there. And I um, got a part in this. It was a medical drama written by Sanjay Gupta and David E. Kelly. And it was such a phenomenal cast. It was um, Bill D'Elia, Alfred Molina, Ving Rhames, Jamie Bamber, Jennifer Finnegan, Sariu Rao. And uh, it spoiled me, man. It was such a <laughs> phenomenal group of actors. And when we, we shot the pilot and then we got picked up for a season. And that was sort of when uh, L.A., I think, claimed me more than New York. Because we shot a season of that. I came back to New York <clears throat> for a few months and I was auditioning, but I didn't get anything. And then I booked The Mentalist, which also shot in L.A. So I went back out there again. And I kept sort of trying to come back to New York, but New York had no love for me. And L.A. did. So uh, I was pretty solidly there for about seven years, I guess. Wow. Um, yeah. And how long were you on The Mentalist? That was for a while, I right? did a season of that. You did a season? And then uh, at some point, Supernatural, when did that happen? That happened in 2015, I guess. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, yeah, and I, I, I loved doing that, that season. That, Amara was such a fun character. And so were you, that was just a season or was that reoccurring over multiple seasons? It was season 11 and now I'm back in season 15, which is the final season. Yes. My my sister yeah. is uh, very saddened that the show is ending. <laughs> She's a oh my god super fan. There's a lot of tears, man. So that was probably would you say that was probably your first experience with like intense fandom with Supernatural? Yes. What yes, indeed. What was that like? It's incredible. It's um, I had never. I'd never experienced a fan convention <clears throat> on either side of it as a fan or as, as uh, an actor. And uh, I remember like one of the first episodes I shot, I was talking to, to Jensen who I was doing a scene with and we were just talking about our weekends and he'd mentioned that he'd been at this convention. And I said, what are those like? And, and he just spoke so glowingly of the fans and how supportive they are and how passionate they are and, and how, um, how much of a community they've created. And I do think, I mean, I think that this happens with lots of fandoms, but I think that the Supernatural fandom has such um, a generous, open heart for each other. There's so much support and they've, they've done, they formed a lot of like charity groups. They've formed support groups for different disabilities and, and mental disabilities. And, um, and there's just so much love there. It feels like there's something about Supernatural that speaks to, um, things that, that are wounded in people. I mean, not exclusively that, but I think that, that there are a lot of people who feel either misunderstood or, um, 
or haunted by something, you know, if they have a mental illness, they, there's a lot of people who say that the, the kind of personification and the imagery of this light and darkness and, you know, these um, supernatural beings and demons and, and then at the heart of it, these two brothers yeah. for whom family is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that really speaks to people. Well, in a family that's had a series of traumas throughout, you know, whenever they do the yeah, flashbacks to their childhood and stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of the things I love about genre television, genre film is uh, the anything is possible kind of storyline of all of it, I think just rings true for a lot of people who are struggling with things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, people call it escapist. Uh, but I, I think it's just comforting to see stories that uh, encourage you to think that you can overcome anything, even a demon or, a, you know, whatever your personal demon is, is represented on screen, really. Or like, going to hell for a while. Yeah, you know. We all, feel like we're, we all feel like we go to hell for a while <laughs> once in a while, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then you escape and you realize it's not so bad. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what was your first convention? My first one was, um, I want to say it was in Chicago. And it was, uh, there's a, a company called Creation Entertainment that does. Mm-hmm. They do, do um, lots of conventions. Conventions that are, yeah. Um, and they're all for, as far as I know, they're all for, like, each convention is, is exclusive to a particular TV show. So, but it was funny because I, I had just finished doing, so I have brown hair in real life for people who don't know what I look like. Um, and I had just finished doing a play where I had to be blonde. So I went to the convention and, um, and on Friday nights at these conventions, there's karaoke. And so Richard Spate, who was kind of the, the MC, he was like, we're going to surprise the fans. You know, they don't know that you're here. Well, they, they knew that I was going to be there Saturday, but they didn't know I was there for karaoke. So he was like, we're going to, you know, announce that we have a special mystery guest and we're going to bring you out. And, uh, and so Rob Benedict, who played my brother, God, on the show, was um, the one who officially brought me out. And he said, I want to welcome to the stage my sister. And it was thoroughly confusing for everybody because they thought I was Rob's sister in real life. His actual sister, yeah. <laughs> on hair, they didn't recognize me. They didn't know who I was. And then we started doing some like funny, goofy dance together. And, uh, and Richard was like, you guys, people, uh, that there were, he, it was like the stupid, like middle school version of like, like sexy dancing. Um, but Richard was like, you guys, people think that you're actual brother and sister, and now you're just being disgusting. And so we had to clarify. <laughs> you know, I was his sister on the show. I play the darkness. My hair was a different color. Everything is okay. Uh, <laughs> Bill brings that up at, at most conventions. He loves to talk about the times that, that uh, we were booty dancing. And well, it's the perfect everybody. convention story. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Nice and fun and awkward. I mean, you know. Totally. You got to have an awkward convention story or 12. <laughs> so I'm curious in your times going to conventions, have you uh, ever seen any cosplaying as your character? I have seen a little bit of Amara. Um, 
which, uh, you know, is a pretty easy one to do as cosplay goes. You just got to find a black dress. And um, I've seen various versions of that, including some very cute little girls dressed as Amara. But um, I have yet to see an armorer. And Mm. I know it's only a matter of time. I've only done one convention since um, the whole series finished airing. And I met plenty of Mandalorians who are in cosplay. And there was a I have a feeling we're going to see a few armors at Comic-Con yeah. in San Diego this summer. Yeah. Maybe even WonderCon before that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable. It's such a beautiful costume. Now, oh my gosh. I don't yeah. I don't know if you can share or not, but will you be joining for any San Diego conventions? Will you, will we see you in sunny San Diego? Um, I don't have information about that. Oh, well I hope I hope that we I get can't to see tell you. you. All right. <laughs> How did uh, how did the Mandalorian come to be for you? Um, also, a, a very unsuspecting audition. I I uh, I remember I was I was planning my wedding because I I got married in at the end of August of 2018. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still married, so that's good. Um, but I was doing a couple of plays in LA and planning the wedding and got this audition for something that my agent said they said we think it's star wars it's a live action series it's a new thing this character will wear a mask they want to make sure you're okay with that here's the scenes that mean absolutely nothing and have no connection to anything which is what happens when you audition for something like that (laughs) and um i was like all right cool and the only person in the room with me was um the casting associate jason stamey and uh, he was just putting me on tape. And the information that I had was that she was, well, they were originally looking at British women in their 50s and 60s. Um, you know, typecast. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we, and, and it, the only information I really had about the character is that she was a leader of a group of people and that she was very Zen-like. And one of the scenes that I had, I now know, was actually pretty similar to that scene in, um, episode three, where the the Mandalorians get all surly and break out in a fight, and she's like, "All right, guys, calm down." Um, I had a scene that was a sort of a version of that, and we did it a few ways. And Jason gave me a little more specific insight into it, and then he asked me to do a couple of takes with a, a British dialect um, because they had mostly been seeing Brits, and I think they did want something in the voice that would set her apart from the other characters so I did that and that stuck when I when I talked to John about um you know what they liked from the audition and what what else I needed to bring to it he said he wanted some version of like a British mid-Atlantic dialect so that she would she would be set apart from everyone else so this is this is John Favreau we're talking about right John Favreau yeah yeah who is not only the most brilliant John. man, but also the nicest. He's like your dad, but your dad <laughs> but so smart and creative. Not that your dad isn't. I'm not insulting anyone's dads. Um, <laughs> the yeah. question is, does he tell bad dad jokes on set? Well, he does not. <laughs> At least some that I heard. I wouldn't put it. So, but, yeah, but yeah, so, so, I, so he really I, wanted the voice to be separated out from the rest of the Mandalorian characters, huh? Yeah, yeah. 
And I, I mean, I did all my work on the show before it was ever even announced, which was also something that I'm just so grateful for. Cause I never, I, the whole time I was doing it, like I knew it was a pretty big deal based on like the sets and the people that they had involved. Like that was like a, it was like Christmas every time I went to set. And I, the only way that I knew who else was in it because they were secretive, even with those of us who were doing it was whether if somebody was in a scene with me, then of course I knew they were in it. Or if I saw their name on one of the dressing room doors. And I remember the day that I saw Giancarlo Esposito's name and I freaked out because I mean, you know, breaking bad, how can you not think right. that he's yeah. a genius? <laughs> um, but I never got to see him on set. I only saw his name on the door and that was exciting. And like meeting Carl and <clears throat> it was, it was so thrilling, but yeah, I, I just knew so little about it, like while I was doing it, like what a big deal it was going to be. And I'm really glad because once they announced it and all the anticipation started and all the speculation started, I was done with my work. So I didn't have to worry about it. No pressure. You just did the work and then, uh, and then everything played itself out afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So in regards to the work, so obviously you guys are in full armor helmet, uh, was that a challenge to your acting? Because obviously it's kind of like mask work or how did you approach that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very much like mask work. And I felt so nerdy and cool that I could call upon my MFA training in mask right. work. <laughs> and it wound up being very, very helpful. And, um, and it was challenging, but the challenges really informed the character in a helpful way. For instance, I could not see very well at all. And so it was really easy to run into things or to trip on things. And I mean, we had already discussed that we felt like the character, um, one, of the, one of the images that, that John gave me to think about um, was the, the Kurosawa film, Seven Samurai, and that, you know, formality of movement of the samurai warriors and um, the simplicity of movement. Mm -hmm. And that was great because if I moved too fast, I was probably going to fall on my face. So it was good that I had permission to move slowly and deliberately. And we also, we were shooting episodes one and three at the same time with uh, Dave Filoni and, and Deborah Chow. So we were all kind of learning together what the language of the movement was for these Mandalorians. Right. And it was so fun to get to do that and to try things out. And, and another thing that contributed to, for, for me, for being very sparse in my movement was, um, you know, when, when people can't see your face, they're looking so much more at your body. So any movement in your body is going to attract attention and it can either direct the story the right way, or it can distract from the story. And yeah. so we were just, trying things and I was getting feedback on that in the moment and we would try a scene one way and then you know Deb would say like I think we need a little less or you need to not like even when you tilt your head that way it's a little too much and it was so much fun to to try that because I've just never gotten to do anything like that on <laughs> my camera before it's really cool and we actually talked about it on our on our other podcast the sci-fi sunday podcast about star wars's long tradition with mask acting and oh, cool. how much emotion can be conveyed without ever seeing a character's face. And we're so used to reading people's faces for emotion. 
Um, but I, I love that you're, you're talking about how every little body movement, you know, affects the perception of what, what the emotion of the scene is. Um, I think it's incredible work, uh, what all of you did on The Mandalorian, um, because so Thank many you. characters you don't see the face of. <laughs> um, but everybody talked about this show and everybody talked about the emotion uh, of every scene. I mean, talking about with all my friends, nitpicking every little thing, um, and, and especially the scenes uh, down in the in the covert. Um, mm-hmm. you know, every single person every has single a mask character's on. got a mask on. Yeah, um, right? But everybody's conveying some story of who they are. Um, and they all have individual personality. Um, it's really fantastic work, um, just across the board. And, you know, my, my hats off to, to you and the rest of the cast that, uh, that, that pulled off such amazing work without, uh, without one of the primary tools that actors like to use. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, everyone was working so hard and it was, I, I knew, I mean, the, the, success of the show has sort of been the icing on the cake because it was such a satisfying experience just making it. Everyone across the board was working really hard, but was working with such joy and giddiness. Like there was, there was this feeling on set that like we all felt like little kids and we were getting to play in star Wars world. And (laughs) everyone was so stoked about that. I don't think anyone ever got jaded about it. In that regard, were you a star Wars fan? Like from the time that you were little? Like, were you a fan going into this? I was. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I was, of course, like, I wanted to be Princess Leia. I had a bunch of Ewoks, stuffed Ewoks, and <laughs> my friends and I would, you know, pretend to be um, Leia and, and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker in the backyard. Um, it definitely is a huge part of my childhood. I did not become aware until I did The Mandalorian of the vastness of the the stories that exist beyond the movies. Like I didn't, I hadn't really um, watched the the animated series, which are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I haven't ever read any of the, um, the books, I guess. And I'm just, I mean, I'm geeking out myself with all that I get to learn and all that, all that I still haven't discovered. It's really incredible to me how vast this universe stretches. Well, especially uh, the storylines with the Mandalorians, because um, Dave Filoni, uh, you know, as you know, in charge of the animated series, he's really expanded the storyline in the Mandalorians prior to this show. Uh, yeah. And with, you know, the big reveal at the end of this season, like definitely tied it into the storylines that he'd been building up in all those animated series. You should go back and check them out. They're <laughs> pretty incredible. Well, I have now a little bit. I yeah. just hadn't Some of the best storytelling in Star Wars before. has come out of Dave Filoni's work. Um, so I was so excited He's when I heard incredible. him and Favreau were teaming up to do this. And uh, yeah, it, it exceeded my expectations, thing. I gotta I gotta say. Well good. Did, did you wow, that's, um that's incredible compliment? <laughs> did you get to spend much time around the child? I know he was <laughs> he's like in a bag in a scene <laughs> with you. Um, ah, I got to tell you, I had no idea what a big deal that guy was. <laughs> um, because I, I read, <clears throat> I read the script for my episodes. Um, 
And I think I got to see like one other script, but they were so super top secret. Right. I didn't know the full extent of the arc of the, the show. And um, I definitely knew, I mean, I got so excited when I was reading that script for episode eight. And I mean, I start talking about Jedi. That just like gave me shivers. <laughs> and, uh, and then I got to see that little puppet is so freaking cute. It's so dumb because you know it's not real and it's still, ah, it's just not fair. I thought he was pretty cute, but I didn't know that he was going to be like the star of like every show ever in the world. He's like the the star of existence right now. Yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. It's like Yoda and Gizmo got together and, and had a baby. Oh, it totally is. <laughs> yeah. It's a good example. Yeah. Um, so when you're, when you're working on a show like that and, and you're surrounded by so much effects work and stuff, how, how, you know, like puppeteering and stuff, how hard is it to stay in the scene and focused on what you're doing? It, I mean, I, I guess maybe because you're in a mask and you've got limited sight, it's maybe yeah. easier to, to cope with. But <laughs> um, The most challenging parts for me were, you know, I didn't have to deal with a whole, like I didn't have to deal with green screen. Um, the puppeteering actually like looked really great in the scene. And, you know, the the he didn't really do that much in in the scene that I was in. However, because they hadn't, the whole time we were shooting, they didn't know for sure if the puppet was going to look right. And so every scene with the child, they shot with the puppet. And then they also shot a clean plate without the puppet so that they could animate it in if they wanted to. Right. Um, And there's this amazing story that you may have already heard about Werner Herzog, like chewing everybody out for that. Telling them that they were cowards. Yeah. (laughs) It was kind of story. weird, like when we had to do, when we had to do, uh, <clears throat> like with IG Eleven in in that last scene. You know, we had to do takes like without anything there, and then we did some takes with a person standing there, and that's a little odd. Um, and then all of my super badass forging sequences that look so cool were really long and very cumbersome to actually shoot, partly because. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm not an actual blacksmith. What? And so, <laughs> like they, they worked with me and we had somebody on set, um, to show me how to do things. And that was cool. Cause I always love it when they I, didn't, get to they didn't send you to two months of blacksmithing boot camp. I know. Right. <laughs> I wish I would have liked that actually be like Daniel day Lewis and go like build my own forge in the woods. There you go. Be awesome. <laughs> uh, no, they did not do that. And that was coupled with um, those gloves that I was wearing were like really big and baggy. And so it was hard to pick things up. Like I couldn't always tell. And they were very thick. So I couldn't always tell if I had a good grip on things. And thank God that, I mean, John, when we were shooting it, he was telling me that a lot of it was going to have the same feel of um, those scenes in. Uh, I want to say Rocket Man, and that's not it. That's Elton John. Um, Iron Man. Iron Man. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Iron Man. Those forging sequences, and so 
I was relieved to know that like there was a vision in place to piece together these things, you know, these little bits of me like hammering on steel and trying to uh, like um, drill things. I don't even remember exactly what I did. So I didn't have to, to deal with a whole lot of, of special effects acting. Um, but when you do, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, I feel like it's just a chance to connect to being a kid and, like having to use your imagination a little bit more. And it's similar. I have done some video game work, some motion capture and that, you know, you have nothing, you don't have any props, you don't have any scenery. So you just got to tap into that, that inner reserve of little kid imagination. Just play. Um, So this show also managed to pop out two catchphrases that are, you know, Kind of like the the modern day, may the force be with you. So you got, uh, I have spoken, which is yeah. great, uh, but we probably won't hear again. Um, and you got to utter what I view now as like the Mandalorian mantra. Uh, this is the way. Like, Holy crap, right? Did you have any idea that that was going to catch on like it has? Um, I feel, well, I mean, obviously, no, not to the extent that it has. Um, But I knew, I didn't know it was something special because there was just, I mean, in those scenes with the, well, in that scene in episode three with the, all the Mandalorians, like that, that's their, I can just feel the energy in the room that it felt like that was a really important thing. Um, But no, I, I did not imagine that it would be as big as it, is and I love it. I love seeing that hashtag <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, my my friends and I we say it to each other every day. <laughs> yeah, I mean it works in so many different contexts, right? Yeah, it's it's infinitely more usable than "May the Force Be With You." <laughs> totally, very true. Also, as I have spoken, my brother started trying to use that <laughs> on his, on his kids. Oh, that's funny. That. <laughs> so. You said, obviously, they did not send you to blacksmith boot camp. However, uh, you have a pretty badass fight scene. Did you have to do any boot camp for the fight scene? I did train as much as I could in the short amount of time that we had. But that is not entirely me doing that fight. I wanted to so badly. um, But unlike a movie where you have, like, months and months, like, TV just has a shorter turnaround. And so we had, I saw the script and it was um, three weeks, I guess, before we were shooting that episode. Cause we shot out of border and episode eight was <clears throat> really early in the, the sequence. Um, and I begged our fight choreographer. I was like, just tell me what I need to do. I will work nonstop. And he said, that's great. I'm glad you're so devoted, but you would need to train for, you know, a year or more to have the, the uh, ease of movement that we need for this. So I did train a little bit with somebody and a lot of the basis for the fight is a martial art called Kali. Mm -hmm. And so I did that to help with like the beginning and the end and some transitions, but I have to give credit where credit is due. And that is a badass, properly trained um, stunt woman doing most of that. It's such a great sequence. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, and, and, I mean, when I was watching it, because I, I saw that episode when everybody else did, I saw it when it, it aired on Disney and my husband and I were sitting here and our mouths were just open in complete bafflement. 
<laughs> it was so cool. And I was like, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I-, I love that you're watching it with the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we got to see the first three episodes at the premiere, but after that, um, it was just, we got to watch it when it came out. Yeah. As a director myself, I, I generally don't like to sh- show my show the movies to my cast uh, until like they can watch it with the rest of an audience. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, I, I like them having the experience that the audience is having now, you know, with them. Speaking of the premiere, what was it like having Chewbacca as your date? <laughs> oh my gosh. That was like the luckiest timing ever. It just so happened that we pulled up in our cars at the same time. And, um, <laughs> standing there, you know, I was, I, I, this is a whole new experience for me. These premieres with, um, with so many, there were so many Mando Mercs there with <laughs> like helmets and with posters and, you know, one thing signed and that was awesome. So I'm signing and I'm signing and I'm signing. And then I go over to like do the, the string of pictures and then Chewbacca comes up and, um, and I mean, what, what else do you do, but get in a picture with Chewbacca? (laughs) It was like every childhood dream come true. It was amazing. It was so much fun. And it, it just, it felt so, it felt like such a family affair. It really did, you know, being there to support the cast of, um, the rise of Skywalker and, and being part of it, it, it really reinforced to me like what a family this whole star Wars world is. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm sure you can't tell us if your character's coming back or not. <laughs> no, I can't tell you if my character's coming back. <laughs> um, but what, what do you have coming up? What, are there anything, any projects on the horizon that people should be looking out for that you can talk about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a few things I can talk about. Um, I, uh, I've been on a CBS show called Seal Team this season, and I will continue to show up on that for the rest of the season. Um, and I may or may not be involved with more of the Supernatural season. Um, and what else? Oh, the last season of Castlevania is coming up. The it's an animated show on Netflix. Yeah, you do the... I, um, I forgot that you did voiceover work for that. That's a really mm-hmm. interesting anime. Again, my sister watches yeah. that, so I, so I know about that. <laughs> nice. She's a pretty cool little sister. Sounds like it. Yeah, she's into some neat stuff. <laughs> what? So, all right. In regards to voiceover work... uh approaches to voiceover versus your general acting work how does that differ um i mean the process is the same for me because even if i'm just going to be even if you're only going to hear my voice and you're not going to see me i still have to get into it physically um so i guess that also means that i wind up looking like a crazy person a lot more because you're often (laughs) in the booth by yourself, or this was my experience with Castlevania, at least like I rarely got to record in the booth with the person that I was in the scene with. So it was just me by myself, you know, moving around in whatever way I needed to move around and, um, looking like a crazy person. But, uh, I'm familiar with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm familiar with that uh, process. Um, 
just so I can tie myself to the Star Wars world since I'm talking to a actual Star Wars person, um, I did voice Yoda in a Star Wars fan film uh, a year no and a half ago. Yeah, Star Wars a Toy Stories. Um, we wa- we actually won Spirit of Fandom and Best Stop Motion Animation at the Fan Film Awards last year. Uh, with wow, Lucas. congratulations. Pretty cool. Um, which means Filoni's heard my Yoda. I can't, I don't know that I can do it on the fly with you. I, the pressure. I know. I hate, I hate doing <laughs> stuff on the spot. So I, if you don't want to, I totally understand. <laughs> but but. I'll, 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 have, I'll have Whitney send you a link so you can watch it. And then you can tell me what you think. Okay, good. You make him nervous, awesome. Emily. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know that I can do my Yoda for a Mandalorian. <laughs> like, <laughs> This Mandalorian is such a big goober, though. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I just got, I have too big a smile on my face. <laughs> I can't get out of it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like I did the same thing for my Yoda. Like I I had my my lines, but I didn't know anything of the rest of the script, and I didn't act with anybody else in the in the scenes. So I just had to do my lines uh, and trying to figure it out. But yeah, trying to play a you know three foot tall diminutive uh, green fellow was uh, <laughs> I had to contort myself out a little bit to get the voice right. Yeah. So this discussion of voiceover actually brings me back to Mandalorian. When okay. you guys are talking, do you have to do voiceover, or is does okay, it come through question. the uh, mask well enough that, that like it records live in? Oh yeah, they had. Um, I mean, part of the reason that the helmets were uh, a little, they weren't heavy, but they, they were felt very restrictive because they had to stay exactly in place because of the mic that was inside. So they were recording us while we were doing the scenes. And then I did have to do a little bit of ADR afterwards, which was the easiest ADR I've ever had to do. Cause I didn't have to, <laughs> right, you have to match anything. <laughs> and it was really cool because we actually, I was doing it while I was on, um, I was, I mean, I was in a studio by myself, but I had, I was on the like chat video, whatever with Dave and with John, who was like jumping back and forth between doing, I think, color correcting for the Lion King and then doing ADR for the Mandalorian because the man does everything. Um, (laughs) And it was cool because we actually, we did change a little bit of the dialogue. There was some stuff that, um, like, I think in the original script, I don't think I said the word Jedi. I think that that was something that they added because they felt like it was unclear. Yeah, I could see um, that. So that was very Try, cool. Trying to be really too coy with the way it was written originally and then realizing. Yeah. Yeah, we just need to say it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which thrilled me because I like, I like getting to be the person who presents the exciting information. Yeah. Yeah. You really, you really did get to present the exciting information. There's a lot of mystery in that show, which I think is cool for, yeah. for, for a series that so many people know so much about. They've, they found this interesting corner of the, of the universe to tell that's not, not known by a lot of people, which is yeah. really cool. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it, it strikes such a good balance between, I mean, it's got so much for anyone who is a Star Wars fan, but it's also compelling and interesting, even if you know nothing. Yeah. I think it's brought a lot of people in who haven't been 
following Star Wars for a while. It was really cool. Yeah. All right. So I have, this is like one of my go-to questions for anybody who's ever on the show. And hmm. it's probably an impossible question because you're already doing like just such amazing, like these were my childhood dreams sort of roles. But do you have a white whale dream role out there that would be like, oh. if, if you could just shout it out to the universe and make it happen tomorrow, what would it be? Oh, man. This is Whitney's favorite question. It's one of my favorite <laughs> I'm so bad with these questions. And people always, you know, people ask for favorites a lot. And I think I'm somebody who avoids, like, choosing favorites. Um, if I could do, well, no, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because the role that I, I hope to play someday is uh, Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. Oh, my gosh. You'd be so good at that. <laughs> Why, thank you. You'd be hysterical, um, man. I think that would be a hoot. So, yeah, that's one. You don't know this, David, but Emily's really funny. Uh, oh. I mean, maybe you're getting the sense. I'm getting that, that sense, yeah. <laughs> and anybody <laughs> who's your friend would have to be, so, you know. Oh, I would. Oh, somebody should do that. Somebody should do that for you. That'd be great. <laughs> anyone? Anyone? Anyone out there? Who's just... <laughs> You're gonna get the phone call in three days. Just wait for it. <laughs> um. All right. And my next go-to question. I feel like you'll have a good one for this. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received about the industry, and who did you get that advice from? Hmm. Um. Man, I've gotten lots of good advice. But, uh, I don't know. The one that's jumping out to me is so simple, but I think it holds so much behind it. Um, I was, and I'm probably going to mess it up, but, uh, I, I was, I did a play, um, I think it was the play I was doing when I auditioned for the Mandalorian. I did a production of Henry the fourth parts one and two out in LA with um, Tom Hanks playing Falstaff. Wow. Wow. And he um, is also one of the nicest people in the world. And there was some advice he got actually, because our director for that show was uh, Dan Sullivan and Dan had directed Tom when I think that he had just graduated from college or something. It was summer stock. And they were doing um, the taming of the shrew, and uh, and I feel like the story goes that um, Dan they they all got to rehearsal and they were kind of like waiting for Dan to tell them what to do. And he said, "Well, you have to give me you have to come with ideas so that I can tell you if they're good or not and shoot them." And it's such a simple thing, but I do think that sometimes we can like show up and and think that like the director is gonna going to have this, you know, grand vision and then we'll just figure it out after that. But I think that part of being an actor is being willing to have really bad ideas. Um, because sometimes you have to sort through the bad ones to find the good ones. And even if like the one that you try sucks, it might get you to the next one. That's going to be brilliant. And, uh, mm -hmm. I was told in grad school that, um, I, I got a a sit down and a talking to after my first semester, because I went into, I went into grad school, like still very much in this like system of education mindset of like, okay, what do I need to do to get an A? Um, <laughs> what do I need to do to make the teachers happy to succeed? 
And you can't do that in, in the creative field. I think um, you and I got the same so, talking to first semester of grad school. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, UVA. Um, but they said to me, they were like, you are going to be very boring as an actor. And you're going to be very bored if you don't, if you don't fail, if you're, if you're not willing to let yourself screw up. And they were like, you know, you, you keep trying to figure out how to get this right and what it is that we want. And that's, you're not, if you're going to do that, this is not the place for you. Um, and of course it was like soul crushing to the, the little miss good girl who wanted to get all A's, but it was, I mean, I needed to hear that both as an actor and as a person. Cause I think that's true in, in life too. Like we keep, I mean, look at all the like self-help gurus and all these different like systems. We try to get things just right, but there's no, there's no right. There's just, whatever path that you're on and you learn so much from the failures. Oh gosh. I had this exact conversation with a friend of mine the other, like a month ago, she was fighting with herself over whether she should move back to New York or come back to San Diego. And she was tearing herself up trying to make this decision because she didn't want to make the wrong choice. And I finally Mm. told her, I'm like, there is no wrong choice. There's just a choice, you know, make it, and yeah. go with it and see where it takes you, you know, but don't, don't fret over whether it's right or wrong. <laughs> Cause the only wrong thing yeah. is, is not having a choice, <laughs> you know? Totally. Um, and Perfect. I love it. I love it when actors show up with big, bold choices and whether they're completely on the right path with the view I have for the role or not, at least we've got a place to start a dialogue from, you know, to actually work on things. Yeah. Somebody who comes with an empty head, nothing to work with there. <laughs> no. Well, that's a good piece of advice is, that you got from Tom Hanks that he got from the director. <laughs> the other thing he said, though, is uh, show up on time and know your lines. Yep. And I think that's also very important because it shows respect. Oh, the know your lines bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure that one out for myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> having a hell of a time trying to memorize lines in a film I'm going to be in in a couple of weeks. So. Do you have any good tips on line memorization for David? <laughs> oh man. I sure don't have any secrets. I kind of just have to do it. I have yeah. to like, like when, I, when I'm getting ready for a, a shoot, I kind of just have to rehearse it, you know, with friends or with a coach or something. Yeah. Um, Cause you don't, you just don't get as much of that when you do film and TV. Yeah. Yeah. How much time did you have with your script for Mandalorian? Because obviously, like, it's so cloak and dagger and under wraps. Like, I'm sure they didn't have, give it to you for very long. Yeah, I want to say it was maybe a couple of weeks. Um, but I didn't really get to, like, sit down and talk with John and Dave until, like, a day or two before shooting. So I was doing a lot of, like, I was cramming, um, like rewatching a bunch of Kurosawa films the night before my first day on set. Smart move. <laughs> yeah, it came in handy. Yeah, but if I was if I was doing that show and looking for someone to play that part, I think uh, someone who filled their head with a bunch of Kurosawa stuff the, the couple days before would make me very happy. <laughs> it was good. It was fun. <laughs> Enjoyable oh. research, anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah, definitely. 
Well, if you um if you do come out here to to Southern California for uh, WonderCon or Comic Con uh, or just a vacation, well, <laughs> uh, you can hang out with her as friends, Whitney. I'm I'm getting to if you're down here for business, we'd love to like sit down and have face to face with you too. Um, on the show, I know I know our listeners will not be able to get enough of hearing from the armor. <laughs> I would love that. That would be fun. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, also, and then yeah, if you want to just come out and hang out with Whitney, I'm sure Whitney's totally down for that too. <laughs> that also sounds enjoyable. <laughs> I have to tell you, um, at the, so I, I said, I've only done one convention since, um, the series finished and right. it was wizard world out in Portland. And there was a fan. That's a good one. <laughs> made me an armorer helmet. So I, I own, I didn't get to take it with me from set, but I own a helmet that is, that is the armorer. That's, That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> it's incredible. That is so cool. Set for me. So I still haven't seen anyone else who's cosplayed the armorer, but I do know, and I know that you can buy this helmet on Etsy. The guy is selling it there. He'll custom make it for you. <laughs> That's what, you have to start wearing that to conventions and just be... Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a hit. It, I mean, I started taking pictures just like holding it in uh in Portland and it was pretty great, but it's a little it's a little hard to travel with. I don't want to break it. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know. probably doesn't feel too good about spiky helmets. Well, yeah, when I was trying to figure out how to get it back to New York, um the other people who were at the convention with me, they were like, "Well, you could just wear it onto the plane." <laughs> <laughs> You just got to get a nice custom road case built for it. That's 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 what you got to do. Yeah, or just like get a bowling ball bag. <laughs> that would work. So cool, um, Emily. Do you have a, a website for yourself or social media where people can follow you and and uh, and see what you're up to? I don't have a website. I have um, on Facebook. I have a a fan page, Emily Swallow Fans. And then on Twitter and Instagram, my handle is the same. It's Biggie Swalls, which is B-I-G-E-S-W-A-L-L-Z. And um, I try to keep up. You know, I can't always, but I do love, I, I come from theater where you get to interact with your audience. And one of the things I love about social media is that you kind of get to interact with your audience. Um, so I love like hearing from people and I, I've loved, I try to repost all the fan art that people send me or they tag me in. Um, cause people are crazy talented. Right. If there's, if there's yeah. one positive thing about social media, it shows you that there's a lot of art out in the world. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Well, awesome. So if people want to reach you or share their fan art or just their, the love of your character, then. That's where they can hit you up. And um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to just sit and chat with us. This is awesome. Yes, fantastic. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I like talking to you guys. Yeah, you're easy to talk with. Well, you are as well. Well, thank you. We should talk to each other more often. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I know it's late there, so... Uh, We'll let you get back to the rest of your life in New York City. And um, yeah, yeah have a great rest my, of your weekend. My dog from doggy daycare. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> my dogs go to doggy daycare too. 
It's such well, a relief the way. when they do. <laughs> right? This is the way. <laughs> this is the way of the dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have a good night, Emily. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. The Intellectual Podcast This Has Been. Thank you for joining us, and may the Force be with you. Hello there, citizens. I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the floaty that will not flush no matter how many times you try in the toilet bowl of crime. I am Darkwing Duck, telling you please talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. <laughs> Whatever the heck that means. After all, you are watching Intellectual Podcast with your ears. Thank you.